Welcome to the second installment of the 61st episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we discuss murders that intrigue us. I'm Mercedes. And I am Cindy. Thank you for listening to last week's episode where we left off with the disappearance of 16-year-old Chevy Wheeler from Clements, California. Our show is often horrifying and graphic, and we will use offensive language. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, we are passionate and always have been about true crime, but we must warn you, sometimes we will make jokes and laugh during our podcast. Want to learn more about us? Visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com to find links to our social media pages. We drop a new episode every Friday morning, so be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out. Thanks for listening. Even if you are slightly entertained by a Southern charm, please leave us a five-star rating along with a comment. And if you're not at all charmed by us, please reach out to us and let us know how we can improve. Also, please recommend our podcast to your friends and family. How's it going, Cindy? It's going okay. Um, my family is being extremely loud at the moment. So, I don't hear them. Okay. You don't hear the slamming of doors and microwaves? I don't. Well, I did earlier. I don't now. So okay. yeah. No. And my husband's on his way back in town. And should he sneak in behind me? I will warn you. Thank you. Because <laughs> you <did> last time. <laughs> yes. So yeah. So anyway, yeah, nothing much going on. So you ready to start? Yes, I am. We did have a really good, we had a really good review. Oh, yay. Hello. Yes, we had a really good review. Let me pull it up and let me read it to you. So we have Brandy H323, five star, says, total true crime fan, and I love this podcast. I'm sad that I'm all caught up and have to wait a week for each new episode. I actually love the fact that you ladies can laugh and have a good time talking about these crazy crimes. Thank you for that lovely review, Brandy. I appreciate that. I have been thinking, I've been thinking, you know, it's kind of like, if you don't like our style, then maybe this isn't the podcast for you because we do laugh about our stuff, you know? Yeah. And I mean, we don't, at least I consciously attempt not to ever, you know, vilify the victim or anything, but I mean, sometimes I laugh. So hopefully I'm not super offensive to others, you know? Right. I, I think that's you. And um, we have another comment that says, I personally love this podcast. I came across one of the host comments in another group here on Facebook and I look and I looked up the podcast and I'm hooked. Love you, ladies. Oh, love you too. Yes. Love you that too. was Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Okay. So thanks guys. Keep those great reviews coming. We love it. Also, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, you might want to go back and listen to that one before listening to this one, because you don't want to miss a second of this crazy ass story. This is so true. So last episode, Wes Shermantine introduced himself as a normal, homegrown, good old, hardworking boy full of charm and goodness. And he may have been hardworking, but as for the rest of it, Nothing could be further for the, from the truth. He and his best friend, Lauren Herzog, were cold-blooded killers and who um, grew up right across the street from each other in Linden, California, a dusty community of about 1,100 people. And it's about 10 miles east of Stockton, which is a bigger city of about 320,000 people. According to people who later testified against them, the two had been trouble from the start, like I told you last week. Mm -hmm. They drank, they did drugs, they bullied people. They strong arm robbed people. They did home invasions. They raped 
any woman or young girl that they wanted and terrorized a community. And they did all of this before they committed their first murder three months after they graduated from high school in 1984. Jeez. So they were, they were just freaking awful people before they even graduated. Sherman Tyne and Herzog allegedly killed for sport. Wes had told several individuals that he had hunted the ultimate kill, dun dun dun, humans. And their reign of terror, as I told you last year, last year, last week, lasted for about 14 years before they were finally arrested in 1999. They, at that time, yeah, they were only, they were charged with six murders, but they were suspects and at least a dozen more. Another guy says he thinks it's like 70. Holy moly. yeah. yeah, last week, what were you going to say? I said, holy moly, 70. Um, yeah, and even Sherman Tyne himself uh, at one point said um, like 124, but, you know, who knows what the truth really is. Right. I mean, we could still find out, as I'll tell you next week. But the last week, I told you about Robin Armtrout, whose brutalized body was found in a creek in September 1985. And I also left off telling you about 16-year-old Chevy Wheeler, who had skipped school and went missing in October 1985, only a few weeks after Robin's body had been found. But the thing is, there were also other young women from the area who had gone missing before them. First, there was 19-year-old newlywed Kimberly Ann Billy, who went missing December 11th 1985 and then about nine months later joanne hobson went missing on august 29th 1985 which was the same day as robin armstrong robin armstrong and joanne hobson went missing the same day joanne hobson she was 16 and i'm going to talk a little bit more about her in just a a couple minutes but that same day both uh both robin and joanne were seen getting into a red pickup truck okay all of these girls who went missing lived in the same neighborhood they all hung out like in the same area and they you know, all were partying and hanging out at parks and, you know, the local dive bars. And what freaks me out is these people are getting picked off right and left. They're disappearing. Why would anyone go anywhere with any other person? Anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Why would you? I mean, I'm, yeah. You know, and I don't want to victim blame or anything because, no, 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 no. you know, these girls like to party and Sherman Tyne and Herzog, they were around and they always provided booze and drugs. And, you know, Herzog was considered like the rock star of the two. Like he would be the one that would, you know, get the girls because he was kind of hot. Or at least they thought he was hot. I mean, I look at pictures of him and think what, a, you know, how ugly he looks because I know who he is. But, right. you know, well, if and I. You just, and you just don't ever screen, think it's going to happen to you. Right. Absolutely. No matter what, you know, and the two, you know, like Joanne was 16, Chevy was 16. And then um, Kimberly and Billy, I couldn't find much information about her. I do know that she was um, married at a young age. So in the area in Stockton, California, where they lived, it was kind of a rough area. Um, You know, they liked to party and whatever. They all knew each other. Well, and they probably weren't expecting like a couple of young kids to be the ones doing all this. Right. Right. Being in murder. Because they were 18 and 19 that at around that time yeah uh, one of uh, one of my sources that i got for a lot of the information on joanne hobson i'm going to go into i got from another podcast called foul play okay and i just kind of read the transcripts because i didn't have time to listen to mm-hmm. and it's a whole series i only read the transcripts from one episode so if you're interested in learning more about this case, I am just touching the surface. Yeah. As I was telling you before we started this, like there's just no way I can cover all of this. It's huge. If you're interested in learning more on it, it's it's out there. So Shane Waters and his co-host Wendy, like I said, did a lot of interviews and they did this extensive series on 
um, the Sherm, the speed freak killers is what they call it. Okay. And they interviewed Joanne's mom and sisters about Joanne. Jo- both Joanne's mom, whose name was Joan Shelley, and her sister Michelle described Joanne as a petite, stubborn firecracker with a free spirit. She was upbeat and friendly. She was naive. She just thought everybody was her friend. You know, mm-hmm. Who's going to hurt me? Just like you said, right? Mm-hmm. Her mom's like, she was just a beautiful little girl. And she was, she was a little girl. She was like four foot eight when she disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, and weighed only about 80 pounds she her mom said that she was about the size of a nine or ten year old child just a little bitty teeny thing and a lot of her friends would call her smurf because she was so little oh um, and her mom said that she's just as cute as the button you look into her face and she was freckle face and big brown eyes red hair and she, her mom said she used to sit she used to sit in my bathroom sink and put on makeup before she had put on her makeup she looked like she was about nine years old but when she got her makeup on which she loved and she looked great mm-hmm. um, her mom said that when she didn't wear makeup you know people confused her for a child a little girl all the time michelle who was two years older than joanne was the big sister who took care of things because joan worked the midnight shift she worked the graveyard shift as she made more money there she was a foreman and she worked at uh, a number of blue collar jobs as her daughters were growing up and eventually becoming the foreman at a cannery. Michelle had moved out for a short time and had a baby and then ended up coming back home. But in that time that she was out, Joanne kind of went a little bit wild and was apparently going out at night, hanging out with neighborhood people. And some of those I've already mentioned, like Robin Armtrout and Joanne, uh, not Joanne Hobson, Chevy Wheeler. The mom, Joan, told Shane Waters, I could go out my front door and look down the street, which was a little street. And that's where the Wheelers live. Robin's mother, after Robin disappeared, would come to my house. She further said that the girls used to all hang over at Bird Park. And I looked it up. It's not called Bird Park, but I guess it's on Bird Avenue. That's why they call it Bird Park. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, through all this time, as uh, the the guys would go hang out there as well, there was another woman who ended up going missing a few many years later, named Tracy Milton. She also disappeared from that park. That's a lot of people in this like one town. Well, it's Stockton, so like I said, that's about three hundred and twenty thousand people. Still, you would think these young girls are all going missing from the east side of Stockton. There's something going on, right? Yeah, that just seems. How does that happen? Yeah. They disappear without a trace. Well, Robin, of course, she didn't disappear. She was found, um, her body was found by a creek, but the other girls have disappeared without a trace. Wow. We don't know if they've been murdered, if they're runaways, you know, they're partying, they've been skipping school. So it's possible. There's no evidence that they have been murdered. Okay. All right. Anyway, the day that they went missing, they were both seen getting into a red truck at, Robin was seen getting into a red truck at Bird Bar. And then we know that Joanne also got into a red truck, but Robin never came back home. Joanne was dropped off and she, because she had a date that night. And um, when Joanne came back from wherever she had been that day in the red truck, she seemed super excited about her date, but she wasn't forthcoming with any of the details when her sister asked about, you know, who you going on a date with? She wouldn't tell her. Michelle had told the podcast guy Shane Waters that she was feeding her baby dinner and Joanne was in the bathroom getting ready to go out and Michelle's like you know who are you going out with and she said well, I was like where are you going and you know I was telling her come on tell me tell me you've got to tell me and she's like oh you don't know him he's tall and good looking with blonde hair and I said oh yeah Ricky Ginger Jack Ricky Ginger Jack is apparently um a one-eyed guy one-armed guy who was really good looking Joanne's like, no, it's not him, but he kind of looks like him. 
Okay. So Michelle's like, okay, she was, you know, she, that was the end of the conversation. It took her a long time to do her hair. Michelle said that she would like do it and then undo it and fix it again. She was changing her makeup, taking it off, changing her clothes. Like, you oh, know, it's one of those nights where not the looks right. You don't know what you're going to wear. You don't know how you want your makeup. But she was super excited about this date. Finally, she got everything the way she wanted it. And it's getting late and the guy stood her up. He never showed up. Oh, so. she was super excited about it. That's well, sad. What? So she went back. She's like, you know what? Screw this. I'm going back to bed. Michelle said it was probably around 11 o'clock when she finally put the baby to sleep. And Michelle said, Joanne was still waiting. She's like, okay, just make sure you lock the front door when you go to bed. So Joanne did lock the, the front door and she went back to her bedroom. And then Michelle said she got up in a, a little while later to check on Joanne and Joanne was sleeping in her room. Michelle tucked her in and shut her bedroom window. Okay. And then she went to bed. And then a few hours later, Joan came home from working her graveyard shift and checked Michelle was sleeping back in the master bedroom and Joanne was at home. She wasn't in her room. She had disappeared in the middle of the night, presumably by sneaking through her bedroom window to meet someone. Her mom didn't worry right away because, you know, Joanne would often call her the next morning. Sometimes she would spend the night out and not call that night. Don't forget, we didn't have cell phones back then, right? Yeah. But the thing is, is Joan did not contact police for 72 hours. She kept, you know, asking around where, have you seen my daughter? Have you seen her? And finally she starts panicking. Yeah. And she's like, okay, I've talked to everybody. Nobody's seen her or heard from her. It's been a couple of days. I need to call the cops. And when she finally contacted police and they, they're like, well, what took you so long to call? And she's like, well, I, um, so they instantly assumed the 16 year old had run away. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. When Joanne didn't show up, I called the police and the first police that I talked to said, she's not a, she's not missing. She's just a runaway. And I said, no, she is not. My child would never leave this house with no clothes, no makeup or purse or anything like that. My child has no reason to run away. Joan said that they then sent Detective Little over and he immediately expressed concern about Joanne's disappearance. She said that he was like very interested in everything she had to say. He asked thoughtful questions. He was taking notes. Like he wanted to know what was she wearing that night? How has her behavior been? Who was she hanging out with? And Joan said that Detective Little really took it seriously on the date of Joanne's disappearance. He seemed to think that that was a significant date. Okay. Come to find out, Joan learned that that was the same date that Robin Armtrout went missing. Oh. Okay. So, so the detective already knew that. And he didn't want to, like, I mean, of course he can't tell them. Oh, well, right. But, but she's kind of like, you know, she knew that something was up and Joan told Shane Waters that the date was significant to Detective Little because he felt that she didn't run away. He thought that she might have been abducted. Um, when I told him about the date, he told us not to mention about the date, you know, just to keep that to ourselves. And he said, because eventually maybe down the road, if they don't find her, it could come up. And the mom said, sure enough, it did. So I'm not sure that she knew at the time that why that day was significant, but it was because Robin Armstrong had gone missing that day. Okay. Okay. Again, like I said, a lot of girls in that area had disappeared and that's what the mom said. Joanne's mom speculated as to both how Joanne and Robin were abducted by Sherman Tyne and Herzog on the same day. She said that witnesses saw both Joanne and Robin getting into a red pickup truck at Bird Park and Robin, she did have issues with drugs and alcohol and she had done some prostitution sex work in the past. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people kind of said, oh, she, you know, she brought it on herself. What is known is that Robin stayed in the red pickup truck 
truck after Joanne came home that afternoon to get ready for her date later that evening. Mom did not know for years that Joanne's date that night was with Lauren Herzog. Oh, Lord. Her- any, any, oh, hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, Joan said of her daughter, she disappeared from our home. She climbed out the front window because I guess he was late picking her up. So she went to bed and my oldest daughter checked on her and she was asleep. And then when I got home, she wasn't in the house. The front door was locked. The window was open. So she climbed out the window to meet him. Never saw her again. Damn. Robin, yeah. Robin Armtrout disappeared that day. And then that night was when Joanne disappeared and nobody was really talking because no, nobody knew anything. You know, this is the mom talking. So we didn't really know a detective that Detective Little had told us when we reported her missing. He did tell them years later that he had always suspected that Shermantine and Lauren had taken her, but he never had the evidence to prove it. Mm. A couple months after he told her that, Detective Little was shot in a shootout. Oh, no. He was serving, I looked it up, he was serving a narcotics warrant in Stockton, California, and he was shot when the guy opened the door. Mm. Joanne's mom said that after the shooting, no one really cared about the disappearance of Joanne after that. Like no one in the police department. Uh, Michelle, Joanne's sister, said that she also started worrying and she was asking around about her sister, like around town. And Joanne had been missing for a long time in quotation marks because she didn't say how long a long time is okay when michelle got an anonymous call i guess there was an anonymous call that came to their house and the caller said you can find your sister in the field and a field off wherever it was she didn't say where it was right. so she and her friends went looking but they never found her sister thank god isn't that heartbreaking to me that somebody would do that i know you hear that all the time that people do that yes but i mean i'm glad they i mean i'm 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 glad they didn't find her though like i am too but then again you know do you want to know the truth or always have that hope that possibly they could still be alive yes i don't know i think i'm the type of person that i like to know but right i would want to know right I, i would rather the police have to find her than Yes, I totally agree with that. Michelle said that she would call investigators once a month just to check on their progress. And they would just always tell her, we're working on it. We're working on it. Of course you are. Yeah. And she said that Detective Little once told her that he knew who took Joanne. He, he knew it was Wesley Shermantine and Lauren Herzog, Herzog, but there was no evidence. He straight up told her, and those are her words, straight up told me that Shermantine and Herzog killed Chevy. So they knew who killed Chevy and Chevy went missing 40 days after Joanne went missing. Oh, wow. Detective Little had questioned Michelle about Joanne and Chevy's relationship to each other, asked if, you know, they hung out, did they know each other? And Michelle was like, yeah, I mean, we all live in the same neighborhood. We all have connections. They weren't like best friends hanging out all the time, but you know, they partied together or whatever. They all knew each other. So yeah. After Detective Little died, like I said, nobody really seemed to care that much about Joanne's disappearance. Now, last week, I did tell you about Chevy Wheeler, the 16 year old who skipped school um, from Stockton. And I want to just give you a little bit more information. Chevy was dropped off at Franklin High School that morning of October 16th. So the police police officers knew what time she got to school okay so she never went through the door she went and got into the red pickup truck they knew that she was with west sherman time that day because of the phone call but there was no evidence in any of the other case other cases that they were suspected in 
All right. So they latched on, they had all these missing girls and they're like, okay, we've, um, we know that Sherman Tyne is involved with Wheeler's disappearance and we suspect him in the disappearance of these other women uh, and the murder of Armtrout. So Chevy's kind of like their last big hope. Like, let's make sure we come for all the evidence. They knew that Wheeler was last seen entering a red pickup truck outside of Franklin High School. They know that she told friends what, that she had planned to skip classes that day and go to Valley Springs, California with a male friend. And a lot of people knew it was Sherman Tyne. The police knew that she was never heard from again. One of her friends said that Wheeler seemed apprehensive about the trip. Supposedly a few girls were supposed to go and all the girls decided at the last minute they couldn't go. She told one of her friends who she begged to go with her, but who couldn't, she told her friend, Hey, look, call my dad. If I don't return by the time school gets out, I'm not sure if that's really true or not, because it doesn't coincide with what I said last week, but that's in the record. Right. All right. In addition, we know that Chevy's sister, Marnie answered a call from Sherman Tyne and learned that her sister had plans with him for the day. Marnie is the reason authorities found out Sherman Tyne's name. It's oh. all Marnie. Now, Marnie, remember, was a 14-year-old sister. Right. By the way, I, I read an interview in which Chevy's mom, and it's the saddest thing, said that she lost two daughters that day. She lost Chevy, who was murdered, yeah. disappeared. She's disappeared to never be seen from or heard from again. And then she lost Marnie, who disappeared yeah. into a life of drugs and alcohol. Marnie ended up having a child or two and the mom, her mom ended up raising them. But yeah. I guess she just tried to drown out everything with the drugs and alcohol. Oh, that's so terrible. That's so sad. Yeah. So authorities learned the identity of Sherman Tyne, who was 19 years old at the time of her disappearance, because Marnie stepped up and told investigators that it was him that called their home and she knew who it was because she had been out partying with him before too my word so of course yeah bring this guy in for questioning are you okay yeah no I'm just like god they're so young (laughs) right yeah Mm. I mean these are I have encountered mean guys like this before oh yeah when I was about their age like oh yeah no I mean it's kind of like the guys that don't grow up and don't go away they're you know no these were like um like date raping Uh taking like you Uh know taking what they want yep um, bullies Okay. Anyway, so of course they're going to bring Sherman Tyne in for questioning and he denied having any involvement at all in her disappearance. And then he even had the balls to contact her family and they're terrorized of him. And he's like, you know, I'm innocent. I hadn't seen her. I guess he went to her house and he called a couple times. Investigators continue to suspect him. About two months after Chevy's disappearance, they traveled to the remote cabin owned by Sherman Tyne's family that was in the area where they went and they had a search warrant good they were there to look for chevy wheeler or any evidence of a crime okay now according to verna sue sherman Tyne, who was wes's mom mm-hmm. and i told you about her last week she's that pleasant lady who oh, yeah. she took a bulldozer to the house of the man who owed her husband money Yes, that was a pleasant woman. She was a bully and she was a drunk and she doesn't remember much about that time, but Mm. she remembers that the police broke down the cabin door and they had a number of missing items from the cabin, which she says the police took or broke. Okay. She was so pissed off at this that she called detectives to complain, telling them that their break-in wasn't necessary. <laughs> that I would have let them inside if they if, and they didn't need to break in the door. During the course of their search, blood and hair samples were recovered, but in 1985, DNA was of little use as evidence yeah. other than to identify the blood type of the sample found. Yeah. So they had evidence they just couldn't prove, you know, it could have been a deer, it could have been, you know, a bloody nose from somebody right. they didn't 
have the DNA testing technology as it is now, or even as it eventually was in 1999 when the samples were finally analyzed 14 years after her disappearance. Damn. Now, investigators privately believed that the blood and hair were Chevy's, but of course they had no evidence to support it at that time. Other people suspected Shermantine of the young woman's disappearances, all of the young women's disappearances, one of whom was very close to Shermantine, and this was his girlfriend at the time, but eventually his wife, Sherry Shermantine. Hmm. Wait, other people suspected Shermantine. Okay, so his wife is even his wife even suspected him. Yes. Well, yeah. Okay. But also I didn't tell you, and I might, I'm, I don't remember if it's in the script for, for next week or not, but the cabin, mm-hmm. you know, his parents really did whatever they could to cover his ass. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They ended up tearing down the cabin and burning it and building some, a newer one on the property before they, I think they eventually sold it. But yeah, once they realized that, you know, evidence had, that potential evidence had been found, they got rid of the cabin. Wow. All right. So for helping my kids, but damn, not like that. (laughs) I'm not, you know what? I will support my child, but I'm going to make my kid fess up. I'm not going to try to cover up some, you know what? I just, I'm, I don't know if his parents ever suspected him, but uh, Mm. I don't know if I could support that. I mean, Mm. I don't know. Mm -mm. No, no. I mean, I love you, but you're on your own on this one. Well, you know, like I might help pay for an attorney or whatever, but I'm not going to go destroy evidence. I'm not going to lie to the police. No, 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 no. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to try to make you take the right, do the right thing. Right. All right. Well, let me tell you about Sherry, um, Sherry Shermantine. And I don't, I I did have her main name, but I don't remember what it was. I didn't write it down. They met in 1981 and did not get married until 1988. They had two sons and separated in 1997 finally divorcing in 2003 so they were together pretty long time yeah uh later on much later on she testifies um, and she tells reporters that he was extremely violent to her he was very hot-headed especially when he started smoking drugs she said that's when it started going downhill for her and apparently he was very abusive and cruel to her and the children and i guess you know he's one of those guys that you know would try to take the baby away from you when he was wasted and you know, fucking assholes. Mm-hmm. Nothing to make a mama more crazy than trying to do something. Absolutely like that. not. No. Anyway, during their years together, Sherry said that he never admitted outright to any of the killings, but she said she put two and two together from pieces of conversations that she had overheard him have with others and that she had with him. Okay. And she said that she often wondered why her own life was spared because she often camped in remote locations with her ex-husband and Herzog, places that no one would ever find her. She was killed. And they talked about that. Like, oh yeah, we can hide bodies and nobody ever finds them. Now, she wasn't married to Wesley um, Shermantine at the time of the killings that I just told you about. Right, right right she said i just don't know why i'm not dead i don't know why i was the chosen one and i wasn't one of them so apparently it was all just a group and she was the chosen i don't know or or i don't know maybe in her mind like maybe she probably has like maybe some sort of survivor's guilt too like why did i get to live and they didn't yeah Yeah, definitely she later told a court that when she was still only wes's girlfriend she noticed a blood inside the red pickup truck that he owned in 1985 she said that immediately after chevy wheeler's disappearance 
He traded in his truck for a blue truck with four wheel drive. She said it was kind of a sudden decision, you know, and he had not talked about it before that. It was just one day he had the red truck and the next day he didn't. Mm. She also said that he came over to her house one time wearing bloodied Reeboks and blood on his corduroy pants. But then when she asked him where the blood came from, he told her that he had been jumped by two guys and he had used a jack handle from the back of his truck to defend himself. She also said that he told her that he was a suspect in Miller's disappearance. He was kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm a suspect. And um, she's like, I never knew that until he told me. Oh, wow. He continued to be a suspect too. So the police... um, he was on the cops or the investigators radar but like i said there was no evidence connecting him to the murder of arm trout or the disappearances of kimberly billy joanne hobson or chevy wheeler i mean life went on for these guys sherman tyne and herzog and at some point like i said they got married they had kids but we know that they were still up to their suspected mayhem Three years later, uh, three years after Chevy's disappearance on October 18th, 1988, shortly after applying for her driver's license, a pretty blonde 18-year-old Gail Marks disappeared from Stockton, California. Good grief. Yeah. She was a reliable teen who, you know, she showed up on time for her work, for a job. And that night she just didn't show up. She didn't call. She didn't show up. She worked at a pizzeria. Um, She didn't pick up her paycheck the next day either. And her mom's like, you know, something, something awful has happened to her. I just felt it. Sue Kaiser is her mom. She said, something came over me and I knew I would never see my daughter again. I sat down and I remember crying really hard. I felt it was like a flying saucer flew over and sucked her up. Sue said that that morning, the day that she went missing, Gail had gone to work with her that day because she needed a ride to the DMV, which was right around from where her mom worked. Her mom worked at the San Joaquin County Mental Health Department. Okay. So she hung out with her mom until the the DMV opened and then she walked to the DMV on Park Street and they know that she made it to the DMV because her driver's license was mailed to her home a few weeks later. Hmm. Okay. And, and the mom knew that Gail had had plans to visit a friend who lived close by after getting her license, but come to find out, Gail never went to that friend's house because the friend's like, yeah, I was on my jury duty that day. So Gail's mom is like, well, I don't know where she went. Maybe she was supposed to take the bus to work or get a ride from someone. But like she, like she said, she never showed up for a shift or to get her paycheck. And she's like, this is how we knew she was missing because her work started calling home to see where she was. And then her oldest daughter called at work and then she started panicking. Kaiser said that she searched for her daughter relentlessly doing her best to get the missing young woman's name and face out in the public. You know, her face never took off and she was a pretty girl. I've seen pictures of her. But you know how like some of these girls, their faces take off and and of course there wasn't social media there, but- Her mom had some friends who made a video. It was a lovely little video about find Gail Mart. She's like, you know, no one, no one cared. She had no idea that the police had suspects in mind until more than 10 years after she learned that there was a, there were suspects in her daughter's case by listening to a press conference that the police had a few years later. And until that press conference, Kaiser had no clear idea of what had happened to her youngest child. A reporter asked 
asked police if there were any suspects in her disappearance and the detective said yes and kaiser's like i remember feeling really shocked she's like because no one had ever talked to me about it i had always asked about the case no one would tell me anything and i wanted to know everything about it but you know she said that at that time she learned that west shermantine and lauren herzog had been considered as suspects in gail's disappearance when interviewed after the press conference she told reporters i want to get her out of wherever she is thrown at the bottom of a dusty well or laying in the mud somewhere i can't bear the thought so that's her take on it right they interviewed the guy who is the district attorney Uh in charge of the case and then another private investigator so there are a lot of people looking into the disappearances and especially in looking into Shermantine and Herzog as suspects one of the guys said over the years a number of witnesses had come forward with information that the two men had bragged on numerous occasions about killing at least 22 people over their drug-fueled terror spree and others like the private investigator Robert Dick isn't that a cool name for a <laughs> private investigator, Robert Dick. Yo, here's Bob Dick. <laughs> sorry all right a little dick joke there okay um others like bounty okay so he was a private investigator and a bounty hunter and he had been investigating the disappearances of dozens of women and men believed to be involved in the with the shermantine and herzog case but he said that you know the violent toll is also much higher it's not just the disappearances it's not just the murders it's the violence Uh, he said these guys were killing all along and he estimates a victim count is around 70 as the police yeah. investigated for years and years trying to find something that they could hold them on jeez so let me tell you that these guys have wreaked havoc all over the place but during the course of their investigation police found of course that the two had graduated in 1984 from the small town of linden and then moved to stockton where they directly went to work sherman time worked for his dad building um, custom homes and Herzog had been employed in a number of places, but at that time he was working in Modesto, which I don't know how far that is. Modesto, isn't that where um, Lacey Peterson lived? Against Lacey uh, Peter- Scott Peterson? I don't know. It could be. It could be. For some that, reason. What, officer, what, what investigators knew is that these guys enjoyed the outdoors. They were avid hunters and fishermen, and they knew the area. Yeah. They also did a records check on them. Herzog had only one brush with the law, and that was in April 1988 when he was given a citation for blaring his car stereo in Stockton. Wow. And for that, he paid just a small fine. Like a noise ordinance. So, yeah, that's it. He's never been arrested for anything else. Sherman Times' criminal record, on the other hand, was a bit more damning as he had several dealings with police. He was considered a suspect in the December 1985 disappearance of Chevy Wheeler, but there was not enough evidence, as I keep saying, to charge him for that. Chevy was one of the key victims here like she's highlighted more than the others because they actually have evidence to me none of the others are minimized at all it's just more information about her in not in december of 1985 sherman time was charged and convicted of illegal possession of a concealed weapon in april 1988 he was arrested and convicted of dui and in february 1997 he was arrested and charged with seven felony charges including kidnapping rape and forced oral copulation of a san andreas woman that's terrible forced oral copulation yes i did look that up it's exactly what you think it is 
I also found reference to an article that stated that a clerk in the Calaveras County Court said that Shermantine had previously been convicted of assault and battery and possession of stolen property in that jurisdiction. But despite these charges and allegations, neither had spent time in prison. Well, oh, I forgot to tell you, the San Andreas woman, mm-hmm. well, he was acquitted by a jury of those charges because the woman was a drug addict and a sex worker. So of course, you know, they're going to listen to him over her. She's lying or, you know, she deserved it or whatever the reason God. why would a sex worker lie why would right. you just admit it what well, i mean people are not going to contact the police yeah well in that field normally don't contact the police unless there's a freaking reason yeah, exactly i mean um well i don't know i mean these people are evil yeah despite the charges and allegations up to this time neither of them had spent a single day in prison but they do finally get what they deserve which is my story for next week (laughs) that's it for today i'm hoping next week i mean there's a lot there's a lot that i'm brushing over there's so much you know like i said if you're interested in learning more that foul play podcast looks pretty good yeah i didn't um, well, no, I didn't. I mean, like I said, I didn't listen to it, but he, I took a lot of the words from the mom through okay. that interview because, yeah. Okay, nice. So that's it for this week. Wow. Well, thank you so much. Hey, you're welcome. You're right. welcome. Well, again, thank you everyone for listening to this week's murder. We appreciate sharing our passion with you and we like, and we thank you for your support. If you'd like to support us even further, please consider subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five-star rating with a comment, please. Your subscription and ratings are essential to our success. You can do this on your favorite platform. For more information and links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, please visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com. We are so grateful to spend our time together to share our murderous stories. Thanks so much for your support. Please recommend It Wasn't Me to your true crime-loving friends and family. And thank you to our Patreon supporters. You are the extra. You too can become one of our beloved patrons by signing up at patreon.com forward slash it wasn't me pod. Thanks again, guys. And remember, it wasn't wasn't me. me.